It is Wednesday, January 10th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellum. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, $25 million and changing how we view traffic. The paradigm shift that we're talking about is recognizing that uh, people will make mistakes. What we, uh, what we try to do is we look at um, how to separate users in time and space. Plus, chefs from around the country will team up for a no-kid-hungry dinner in Bentonville. My hope is that people will come, they'll have a great time, they'll have some libations, uh, they'll enjoy the atmosphere, they'll feel comfortable enough to, you know, really give. And your idea, a library, and a possible resulting small business. So what we were really looking to do is try to find a way to encompass all of the great things that we offer in our library and in our Center for Innovation and find ways to connect these pieces to the business community. First, this news from NPR. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, January 10th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Later today, we hear film critic Courtney Lanning's top five films of 2023. That's in our second half hour. First today, $25 million is headed to the city of Fayetteville, courtesy of the Federal Department of Transportation. That funding will go towards a program called Safe Streets for All. Last July, the city released a safety action plan, which lays out some of the elements needed for a paradigm shift in how they plan to prioritize safe, accessible, and equitable transportation. Chris Brown is the public works director for the city of Fayetteville, and he says that begins with changing from the idea that traffic deaths are inevitable to traffic deaths are preventable. The paradigm shift that we're talking about is recognizing that uh, people will make mistakes. What we uh, what we try to do is we look at um, how to separate users in time and space. That means thinking more proactively about vulnerable road users. Brown says a few different kinds of users fall into that category. Yeah, so uh, that's, I mean, obviously pedestrians, uh, bicycle users, but also uh, motorcycle users. That means prioritizing space for those vulnerable users to move that don't put them in the roads. That means, you know, separated bike paths, separated sidewalks, but also separating them in time uh, so that they're not crossing at the same time. So providing safe crossing locations, that sort of thing. Uh, So it's really about recognizing that uh, there are things that we can do to prevent these accidents and uh, working on those in many different ways, looking at all of our systems. Between 2017 and 2021, more than 1,300 people were killed or seriously injured in crashes in northwest Arkansas. The data show that vulnerable users are far more likely to be killed or seriously injured. The statistic that, uh, that really jumps out at you is that uh, our vulnerable road users are involved in only about 3% of our crashes in in northwest Arkansas. But the number of fatalities and serious injuries that the vulnerable road users are involved is 45%. So only 3% of our crashes involved vulnerable road users, but 45% of our fatalities and serious injuries involve vulnerable road users. So obviously, we recognize that that's something that we have to do better with and protect those uh, VRUs. Five major projects were pinpointed based on what the city calls a high-injury network. These were the areas that saw the highest density of crashes resulting in deaths or serious injury. 
All of this research and data was critical to help the city quickly pull together a strategy and plan for federal funding. Dane Eifling is the mobility coordinator for the city. He called the process NOFO. It's the notice of funding opportunity from the feds and then matching that with our um, comprehensive safety action plan from the region and seeing what projects would be eligible because each of the streets or each of the locations, they need to be on the high injury network as identified through analysis by the consultant and evaluating data of past crashes and then characteristics of roads that show us where the most crashes are happening. And so with the the grant opportunity, we were matching up projects that we knew that we had either bond funding for or other momentum around and matching those with projects that were eligible through the grant and with the plan. And so that, that kind of really helped us narrow down those projects that we wanted to, to focus on. And that in turn helped us to, to develop a strategy. Eifling says in the past, when they made proposals for grant funding, they only included one street project, Maple Street. And we feel like that maybe was part of a problem why we didn't get funded was because our ask was too small. And so as we continued to, to develop a complete community-wide strategy, it be- became a much larger grant ask. And I think that actually plays in your favor uh, for a small state like Arkansas. We're probably only going to get one. And so uh, when they're looking at administering a grant, it's probably as easy to administer a small one as it is a big one. So that um, they tend to gravitate, I think, towards the bigger projects. Matt Mahalovich is the active transportation manager for the city. He says it's been a long road to get this project funded and with four other attempts to acquire grant funding. Around eight years, we've been working on upgrading Maple Street. So one of the primary goals is, as, as many of you know, we have the Razorback Greenway just a little bit off from the University of Arkansas campus, um, just beyond the railroad tracks is where the Razorback Greenway, and we're missing that critical link between campus 30,000 students connected to the Greenway. Maple Street runs on the north side of the University of Arkansas's campus and serves as one of the main streets crossed by students, faculty, and staff. One of the main intersections of Maple Street sees as many as 1,900 pedestrians per hour when the university is in session. In that time frame, from 2017 to 2021, this half-mile stretch of street was the site of 115 crashes, including two pedestrian fatalities. Mahalovich says the street was widened in the 1960s to accommodate parking, so the street is essentially three lanes wide through much of it. The project will be to have a two-way protected bike lane, uh, cycle track, as some some are referring to. Also, two eight-foot sidewalks, which will be senior walks for the university, actually accommodates four years' worth of names uh, that will be put into those walks. So that's quite a benefit. The plan also includes updating normal infrastructure as well, including storm drains. Also, it's going to have improved crosswalks with the uh, what we call RRFBs, rectangular rapid flash beacons. That will be passive detection so that whenever anybody walks up to it, it automatically comes on every time. Other projects to be prioritized are based on the research from that high injury network.
So example, Joyce Boulevard, uh, we have a lot of crashes on there. The way it is built with four lanes without a turn lane and insufficient sidewalks and, and things like that and crosswalks. And so uh, those end up having more crashes. So we identified where the most need is on these projects. Another critical element of this plan goes towards building infrastructure that is equitable. That means, in part, building infrastructure for all ages and abilities. What studies show is that 60% of the population is actually interested in trying to get around town um, by other modes than a car, uh, but they have to have a comfortable facility. And so that's where we're really focused on separating it from the, the street with as much green space separation as we can get, light poles, trees, and definitely a curb that instead of having those bikes in the road with the cars, we're moving it out. And definitely seeing that as an example of what's going on with Mission Boulevard right now. And that'll be a 12-foot facility separated from the road. And one other theme, too, that it really touches on all this. Dan Eifling again. With equity and facilities is transit. Uh, A lot of people are cut off from public transit, not because they don't have a bus stop near their house. It's because they don't have a safe way to walk to access it. And so most of these project corridors that we're investing in our transit routes. Eifling says the plan is to add things like better sidewalks and bus shelters at these transit stops in these areas. And all of a sudden you're able to ride a bus to work or uh, or home or to wherever you need to get to because you have that last mile connection. And that's just as important as any of these other things that we're doing. And so, yeah, given that ability to opt out of a car, even if you don't want to ride a bike down Weddington, you know, uh, that's that's totally understandable. But but it is a bus route, and so you, you ought to be able to uh, to have have options in your transportation. And uh, it starts with good uh, good walking because uh, every transit ride is also a, a pedestrian trip. Maple Street and College Avenue already had some planning prepared for those projects, but Mahalovich says input is still needed for one like Joyce Boulevard. We don't have a real plan yet, so we want that input from the public to help develop it. Um, so that, that'll be kind of some of the initial parts that the public will be involved with. Chris Brown, the Public Works Director, is sure to point out that a project of this scale means that this is going to take a while. It will probably be a, a period of several months before we have our project agreements in place and before we will be able to uh, you know, start seeing the, some things implemented uh, we are going to be talking to the our federal liaisons about, you know, what we can get started on and get started as quickly as we can. But uh, I think, you know, it, it's great. It's wonderful that we that we got this grant. Uh, now kind of the work begins on the, on the sides that uh, that people don't see and all the, the planning and design and, and work behind the scenes before we can actually get this on the ground. So. Uh, patience is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a good thing in this case. Eifling says it's important to remember how significant this funding is for Fayetteville. You know, they hear big numbers a lot of times. They hear, oh, you know, X million dollars or Arkansas is getting its share of $10 billion or something like that. But uh, this is the largest grant of any kind that the city's ever received for anything and by by significant margin. So it is a it's kind of a historic uh level of of investment and it all has to do with safety is what it comes back down to is that we would have never gotten this money if we didn't have injuries and, and fatalities on our roadways and so um, it's something worth you know remarking on and celebrating but we don't want to be too um, flip about the fact that we're trying to address a very serious problem uh, with our transportation network you can find more details about the plans on our website
For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. In our second half hour today, a fundraiser to combat child hunger is also a chance for chefs to learn new tricks from one another. There's going to be an ingredient. There's going to be a technique. There's going to be something, hopefully, that you can see and, and be like, okay, I like that. I'm putting it in my pocket. Like, um, we, we like to use curry leaves around here. One of those came from an event we did with a guest chef who brought them in. And we were like, that smells amazing. That's, that's so, there's got so much flavor. What is this? Details later on this edition of Ozarks at Large. Arkansas medical marijuana sales set a new record in 2023. The Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration shows that sales totaled $283 million. Scott Harden is the department's spokesperson, and he says the ongoing question has been how neighboring states' availability of marijuana would impact sales in Arkansas. And at least as of now, it sure doesn't look like it because we had another record year. You know, $276 million was our record from 2022. This year we got to $283 million. What we are seeing this year that's interesting is just that the amount that's being sold is going up significantly. And then we also increased by a few million, but it sure looks like the price is becoming more and more competitive by the day. Dispensary sold more than 62,000 pounds of product in 2023, which is a significant jump from the 50,000 plus pounds sold just the year before. The Arkansas Department of Health reports there are currently more than 97,000 active patient cards as of January 9th. Harden says this is significant as well. We thought that when the market was fully mature, We'd have about 50,000 people in the state with a medical marijuana card, and uh, we're getting close to surpassing 100,000. Since sales first began in 2019, the chart has continued to go up and to the right, growth year over year. When it comes to more of the same in 2024, Hardin says it certainly looks like that will be the case. If there is a slowdown in Arkansas's medical marijuana future, we're not seeing it at this point. Uh, you know, there's a lot of coverage about the surrounding states and obviously Missouri and and the dispensaries just across the border. But um, other than there was one dispensary that did testify to the Medical Marijuana Commission that their sales had dropped by about 15%. But other than that, we're not hearing a lot from other dispensaries. The state has approved 38 dispensaries across Arkansas, as well as eight cultivators to provide products to those dispensaries. Historic Cane Hill and the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission are partnering for the annual Northern Bobwhite Quail and Eastern Wild Turkey Stamp Art Contest. Vanessa McEwen is the executive director of Historic Cane Hill. We got involved because part of our mission is to promote the arts and to, to build on the rich history and the legacy of the arts and culture and natural heritage in our Ozarks community. So it seemed like a natural fit since quail and turkey and their habitat are a part of the natural heritage of the Ozarks region and our area. And um, there's, there's a lot of quail habitat restoration in particular happening nearby. So it, it made sense for us to um, try and highlight that those efforts and kind of merge the, the arts and the natural heritage into this program. Since 2018, these voluntary conservation stamps have helped to raise more than $2 million worth of habitat restoration for quail and turkeys on public lands throughout the state. We know that habitat loss is one of the the biggest reasons why 
you know, quail population is down, something that I remember as a kid going out and hearing, hearing the Bob White's whistle, you know, you just don't hear that very much anymore. And, uh, you know, learning that, that restoration is actually helping to, to bring back some of those animals is, and the natural habitat is really exciting. The nationwide competition is open to any artist in the U.S., 18 or older, now through February 3rd. In addition to having their artwork featured on the stamps, winners will earn a cash prize of $2,500, second place gets $500, and third place will receive a $250 prize. We put together a jury made up of subject matter experts on quail and turkey and an artist, and they review the submitted pieces, um, evaluate them for artistic merit, and very importantly for depiction of ecologically correct Arkansas natural habitat um, that eastern wild turkeys and northern bob whites would inhabit. We we want to to clearly depict you know what you would see in Arkansas where where these birds would be. So the judges select the best design that will make an interesting stamp um, that will be useful and attractive, and um, will be accepted and prized by hunters, conservationists, stamp collectors, and and anybody who's interested really. McCune says winners will be announced during a public exhibition at the historic Cane Hill Gallery on March 16th. A link to submit artwork is available at historiccanehillar.com. A former Arkansas Razorback defensive standout will be inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. Dan Hampton played for Arkansas from 1975 through 78 and was a first-team All-American in 1978. Hampton was announced on Monday as a member of the Hall's 2024 class. He will be the 21st Razorback to be inducted into the College Hall of Fame. This is Ozarks at Large. The USDA estimates about 13 million children in the country, that's about one in five, face food insecurity. Raising money to combat hunger, as well as raising awareness, is the mission of the national organization No Kid Hungry. And again this year, No Kid Hungry and The Hive in Bentonville are partners for a fundraising event. Last week, just before the lunch rush started at the Hive at 21C in downtown Bentonville, Micah Klasky, the Hive's executive chef, sat down with me to discuss the restaurant's long-term relationship with the national No Kid Hungry organization. You know, I think eight or nine years now, um, you know, I've been fortunate, like I've personally helped execute dinners from, you know, in Bentonville, Little Rock, all the way to Louisville, Kentucky. Um, we work with them and essentially, you know, the format has traditionally been we bring in, uh, you know, guest chefs from all over the country, you know, because we do. We want this to be like not only just a night of um, of sharing information and of fundraising, but also, you know, an enjoyable experience. We want most people, you know, people to get, you know, bang for their buck, for, for lack of a, a better term. The bang part of the bang for your buck means a collection of cocktails, appetizers, entrees, and desserts prepared by a collection of chefs from Northwest Arkansas, Oklahoma City, Houston, and California. The buck part? It is a fundraiser, and tickets begin at $150 with a table for 10 for 1200 
$150. Sponsorship levels start at $5,000 for the dinner on January 27th, and Chef Klasky says he hopes to raise more than $90,000 for the night. My goal, my intention, my hope is that people will come in, they'll have a great time. We're actually going to do an after party with a DJ and everything with a percentage of uh, in the lounge with a percentage going to No Kid Hungry. Um, so my hope is that people will come, they'll have a great time, they'll have some libations, uh, they'll enjoy the atmosphere, they'll feel comfortable enough to, you know, really give. The top donation level, $10,000, includes complimentary rooms and a morning after champagne breakfast. Klasky says beyond the common work for a cause, the evening for the chefs can be a valuable time to labor together and learn from each other, often from chefs who might not have ever even met before. You get to bring somebody else in and, and have their influences in, in the kitchen for the day, you know, or two days, depending on what their prep, lo- their prep load is. So you can be in there and... I'm sure you're busy. I'm sure there's high energy, but you can pick something up if you go, oh, maybe use that ingredient or that style or something. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's always there's always something to learn. There's always, you know, like uh, I used to work for a chef. He said a day without learning something about food is a day wasted. Uh, And I think that's very accurate. Um, because yeah no you you get somebody coming in yeah there's going to be an ingredient there's going to be a technique there's going to be something hopefully that you can see and and be like okay i like that i'm putting it in my pocket like um we we like to use curry leaves around here one of those came from an event we did with a guest chef who brought them in and we were like what that smells amazing that's that's so there's got so much flavor what is this and it just sort of became part of our rotation Local chefs participating this year include Arturo Solis from the recently opened Lady Slipper and Luke Wetzel from Oven and Tap, both of those restaurants in Bentonville. James Beard nominee Jeff Chancellor will provide his take on Lao cuisine. He's coming to Bentonville for the evening from Mardur Kitchen in Oklahoma City. New York Times, Bon Appetit, best fifty in the you know uh, best fifty in, in the country. Um, James Beard nominated multiple years. Like the dudes, the dudes, amazing talent and just. Seems super cool. Uh, then we've got uh, Nelson German out of uh, California, Alamar Dominican Kitchen. Um, uh, he is a former Top Chef contestant. Um, I met him while I was up in D.C. lobbying with No Kid Hungry, um, and uh, just immediately felt like he just seemed like a like a, a very sincere, soulful person. Like I mean, I think we we hung out and spent maybe uh, all of forty five minutes together, just he and I, like really, you know, kept, like. Uh, connecting, but um, yeah, he just yeah he just felt like the most one of the most genuine people you'll ever meet. Also part of the No Kid Hungry team this year is Rebecca Mason from Fluff Bake Bar in Houston, another former Top Chef contestant. Like Nelson German, Chef Klasky met Mason while they were all in Washington D.C. together, lobbying on behalf of No Kid Hungry. While this month's dinner can raise a significant amount of money to help fight child hunger. Klasky says it's obvious there are bigger picture efforts needed. He says he and his fellow chefs lobbied on behalf of the Farm Bill and other legislative matters. We're there to talk about uh, protecting SNAP benefits and, and, and not just protecting them, but strengthening them. Um, so, you know, the whole goal was to basically, you know, we split up into groups and, you know, I talked to uh, the folks from Georgia and Arkansas, um, We you know, and, and we really talked about just trying to make sure that people not only have, you know, children, people in general, families, uh, not only have access to these programs, but they have access to food. I mean, it's all fun and games until you live way out in the middle of rural Arkansas. And, you know, yes, you can get, you know, a stipend in the mail, but where are you going to spend it? The the little gas station around the corner. So, um, you know, worked on making sure that things made sense. Like, you know, you can buy a rotisserie chicken with your, with your benefits that you can, you know, hopefully like try to expand it to online portals so that you can order things online um, to come to you so that you know you don't have to drive an hour and a half into town just to try to you know just to try to spend that that credit you know
During the run-up to this month's dinner at the Hive, Mike McClaskey has also been boosting another No Kid Hungry program that blends two of Bentonville's major characteristics, cuisine and cycling. It's called Chef's Cycle. He says he became involved after a founder of Share Our Strength, that's the parent organization of No Kid Hungry, tapped him on the shoulder while he was in D.C. Give me your card. I want you on Chef Cycle next year. I said, absolutely. Here you go. And she walked away. I said, what is Chef Cycle? (laughs) The merging of food and cycling appears to be a perfect fit for Northwest Arkansas in general and by crazy Bentonville in particular. My hope is uh, that, you know, people can see what I'm doing and realize that, hey, you know what, this is an interest shared in this entire city. So um, why, why, you know, why shouldn't we participate? You know, like hopefully more people join. Like, honestly, um, I've signed up as a team. So basically I've got my individual page and I've got my team page. I've got a 21C Bentonville, big, bold letters. Um, And we're actually number one on the leaderboard right now for funds raised. We're at $23,000, which is just insane. We uh, it's, you know, we're already getting there. Uh, And I love that that's already there with so much time left. Um, uh, my goal is to raise around, you know, hopefully around $90,000 this year. Micah Klasky is the executive head chef at The Hive in downtown Bentonville. The restaurant will host the 2024 No Kid Hungry Dinner January 27th. You can find out more at thehivebentonville.com or nokidhungry.org. And you can also find out much more about Chef Cycle at chefscycle.org. I spoke with Chef Micah Klasky last week at The Hive inside 21 Museum Hotel in downtown Bentonville. This is Ozarks at Large. Got an idea for a product or small business but need some help with development? Maybe the Fayetteville Public Library can help. This winter, the library's Center for Innovation will host the latest Maker-to-Market Entrepreneurship Program. Accepted applicants can learn how to use equipment in the fabrication and robotics labs and receive personalized instruction in all kinds of startup needs. It's the second edition of the program, and we asked Melissa Taylor, the manager of the Center for Innovation at the Fayetteville Public Library, what she learned from the first Makers to Market program. We learned that not everyone is in the same place in their business journey. So we altered a few things to make this program more more accessible this year to, to anyone, honestly. So um, we've kind of changed the format. We've added some online learning content where they can achieve some of these goals from home, from anywhere. They're not necessarily tied to the library for all of these programs. It's a 72-hour course over 12 weeks, right? That's right. So we're calling this a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure pathway. Um, The goal is to accumulate 72 hours of training, again, from wherever they're really going to need it. Um, And they can do that through in-person classes, they can do that through some online content. We have a lot of really great community partners that will be joining us and teaching some classes and workshops on things like digital marketing strategy, defining your brand identity, and even you know learning how to put all of those things into media, like how to explain your brand through video and audio and podcasting and things like that too. And video and podcasting, all of those elements can be 
uh, tackled at the library. Exactly. So what we were really looking to do is try to find a way to encompass all of the great things that we offer in our library and in our Center for Innovation and find ways to connect these pieces to the business community. So again, working with some of these local business leaders and experts and some of some of our own skilled staff at the library, we're, we're really... Um, changing the way that we use these spaces and turning them into like marketing spaces and promotional spaces and learning how to use these tools for their business advantage. What were some of the plans or ideas that that first cohort had? Um, Some plans or ideas. Do you mean like... uh, What were they working on? Yeah, some really creative ones. I really loved um, one of our participants last year was creating custom quilt kits Using our laser cutter, they had never done digital fabrication before, but they had this really great idea, just needed to learn how to automate things a little bit so they don't have to cut these quilting patterns out by hand. So they became equipped with our laser, and now they're working on selling these custom quilting kits of various pieces of art. It's really beautiful. Um, Someone else created these really great educational geologic puzzles that um, demonstrate and teach students about the historical geographic layers here in Arkansas. And um, those hopefully will be out for production here soon. And we had another success story where a participant was creating and is currently going um, stately ceramics, shout out, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, They are creating these really great state-shaped mugs as well as state-themed T-shirts with cool like pockets that are shaped like Arkansas. And those are being sold actually all around Fayetteville in this region. So we're excited to see these people succeed from our program. Well, yeah, and it's makers to market. So you you get the cohort in, they're makers, but the idea is you're going to get stuff on shelves or on a website or something. Yeah, exactly. And we really hope to be able to support that business idea that whole way. Um, So we're hoping to be able to connect people with um, how to develop packaging, how to develop their, you know, their market experience, their market... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Savviness? Or? Yeah. Like how to set up a really good vendor space, how to how to draw people into your market when you're selling things at one of our local craft fairs. Um, we'll also be working with people to help them develop their websites and learn more about e-commerce and selling online. So how do you get involved? I know there are some requirements. They When I went over them, they don't sound like they're much. It sounds like if you're thinking about this, you've probably met these requirements. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, our biggest requirement is that your business idea or your product idea or your invention or prototype can be brought to life within our Center for Innovation spaces and with our tools and technology. So while all of the applications that we've received so far have been viable businesses, um, we really have to make sure that the services that we're offering are going to actually help support and uplift that business. So while uh, while we want to be supportive of every business, we have to make sure that it's something that we can actually help with and that can apply to our spaces and our resources. If I was going to launch a trucking company, for example, that probably wouldn't fit here. That probably wouldn't fit, but we know the right people to point you to for <laughs> right. that. So that's where the library again comes in handy because we're still a resource provider sure. and we'll still connect you to the right spot. And if I want to learn how to drive a truck. We got you there, actually. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So how do the, the in-person work? If you've got someone who's got this idea for this quilting fabrication and someone else who's got some mugs, are there times when you're all together and then times when you're all 
sort of separate working on the equipment that might help you? Yep, exactly. So we have some classes that everybody will be attending together. You know, those classes on learning about your patents and trademarks, learning about e-commerce, funding, um, networking events. We really hope to bring our our make it or market participants together and have a lot of networking events where they can get to know each other, share ideas, share you know, issues that they're experiencing with these digital technologies and maybe work together. Um, But there's also individual classes and workshops that maybe only two or three might attend over here. Maybe, uh, you know, another workshop everybody will attend from the cohort. But it's, again, the individual being able to select from our variety of course offerings, I think, will be key to success in this program. And do you have a variety of instructors? We based do. On the expertise? Absolutely, we do. So we have folks that are teaching 3D printing and design, folks that are teaching how to use our lasers, again, branding, marketing strategies, uh, audio, video, all kinds of great things, different instructors from all kinds of places. You complete this course you've completed it, you've gained some, some some knowledge, but there's something that comes at the end of the course, isn't there? That's right. Um, this, this year, for the first time, we're offering a $500, we're calling it, you know, a, a material stipend to, to maybe launch the first run of your product, to maybe run a few extra prototypes, or maybe you want to use that um, $500 to pay for your first few months of your website to get that launched. And so once people complete the 72 hours, they will get access to that, those funds. I'm going to do some quick math here. 72 hours over 12 weeks. Is that six hours a week? It's about six hours a week. So that's not yeah, so bad. Exactly. It's not so bad. And again, and when they're able to choose which classes they want, these are courses that are being offered during evenings and weekends. We'll sprinkle some in during the day as well. Um, and even those courses that they can take at home online, I think that creating all of these different pathways makes it really easy to hit the six-hour average per week. Do I have to be a card-carrying member of the Fayetteville Public Library? Ideally, you will be yeah. a card-carrying member, but there's very few restrictions on becoming a card-carrying member of the Public Library. If you live in the Northwest Arkansas region, you automatically qualify pretty much. And we do have scholarship opportunities. So if um, if there is a potential to get in the door, we're going to get you in the door. How do you apply? That's a great question. So you're going to want to check out faylib.org slash maker. That's where you're going to go find our application for the From Maker to Market program. Once you submit your application, we'll be reaching out to you um, here in the next next couple of weeks to let you know about the next steps. Easy as that. What if I had this idea? I've been inspired here, but... I don't know if a 3D printer is something I can use, or I've never used it, or I'm intimidated. Do you ease me into this? We absolutely do. Anyone can do anything in the (laughs) Center for Innovation. We are confident about that. And that's what we really love about the community of makers that we've built within the Center for Innovation. Lots of people have come in there. um, I call it the deer in the headlights look. They are really interested and excited, but they're also very intimidated, intimidated and a little scared to get involved. Um, we break down those barriers. We make things easy. We let people get comfortable in there. And there's always someone on hand in our fabrication robotics lab to help you out. So there should be no fear. Uh, all honesty, using the machines is always the easy part. It's the most intimidating part, but it's the easiest part of the process. You know, what should be really intimidating is designing your product, using those, you know, uh, those software tools that are a little bit more difficult. But the machines are easy. And we like to inspire confidence. What if someone is not a digital or machine native, and they're an immigrant, they're in their 40s and 50s, beyond. Do you see that 
those barriers can be overcome? Absolutely. We had um, actually a patron last uh, cohort was an immigrant from, I want to say, Nicaragua. And they were launching a really great genealogy product. And um, we encourage people from diverse backgrounds and audiences to join us for this program. In fact, we're trying to make sure that the instructors, the content, all of the the whole program is really um, targeted to these underserved communities. So everyone is welcome and we'll certainly find ways to make sure everyone feels connected and feels inspired and feels supported in this program, no matter where they're from. Completion, do you get a sticker or a badge, something that maybe if I go to a craft fair, I can put this on the table and yeah. say, I'm a graduate, I'm an alum Oh my this. goodness, absolutely. We have these really cool plaques that we've made, and I've yet to see any out in the community at the fairs, but um, I hope to see those after this first cohort gets launched and gets going. Yeah, absolutely. Do you get inspired? I mean, what, are you part of the classes? Do you see what's going on? In I those? am. Yeah, absolutely. I help oversee this, the ongoing operations and the scheduling and the design of this whole program. I also uh, look over applications and kind of see who we can help. If there's people who we feel like have a really great idea, but maybe we're not the people to help them, we, I'll refer them to someone else in the community that can support them. I'm involved in this day to day and I get to see the successes. And that's really the best part. Do you ever get inspired? Like, oh, well, maybe on the side I can... Are you kidding me, Kyle? (laughs) All the time. I am that person that is inspired by other people. I'm just inspired by art and creativity. Um, If I could participate in this program officially, (laughs) I would, but I want to make sure that there's space for our community participants. Um, But absolutely, every day. and, And a lot of it is getting access to the tools and technology that we have in our Center for Innovation is incredibly inspiring. There are so many ways where we could launch a business. I mean, every day I have a new idea for a podcast or every day I have a new idea for an apparel line or, <laughs> or jewelry that I want to make. It's, it's just, you know, I'm so focused on supporting other people. I don't really have time to do that myself, but uh, I can live vicariously through them. Absolutely. What's the deadline for application? The deadline for applications is January 20th. Okay. And our first cohort starts on February 1st. And that runs through April. And for folks who have submitted applications or will be submitting applications, we will be getting back to them shortly. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you, Kyle. What would I say? I wouldn't say break a leg to someone who's joining this. I'd say... Sell some stuff. Make a product. Start your business. New year, new you. Tomorrow on Ozarks, we plan ahead for a full weekend of festivities and events surrounding the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday in northwest Arkansas. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth will talk with Lindsay Leverett-Higgins on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 on 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. You can also listen by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. Elections can be nerve-wracking, dramatic, even absurd, but they're also an opportunity, a chance for the country to take stock and for Americans to express their values. NPR will be here for you throughout it all this year with clear, rigorous coverage and a focus on the facts. Election 2024. Get closer to the issues. Get closer to your vote. And you can follow the primaries, the caucuses, the nominations, the campaigning, and the elections of 2024 all year long right here on 91.3 KUAF, your public radio station. 
In Rogers, there's an interesting partnership Thursday. It's between Art on the Bricks Art Walk and Arkansas Quilt Trails. Thursday, from 4.30 until 7.30, and let me offer this winter-required caveat, weather permitting, Art on the Bricks patrons are going to be encouraged to participate in a community art-making project taking place at the Rogers Experimental House. The Arkansas Quilt Trail, by the way, a series of painted wood images representing fabric quilts. When completed, they're usually hung on a barn or a similar structure and are often referred to as barn quilts. Counties in Arkansas that want to join the Arkansas Quilt Trails need 12 approved blocks before being added to the official trail site. This is where the Thursday night event comes in. There will be a painting station at the Rogers Experimental House and the quilt square that is being completed during the Art on the Bricks Walk event Thursday will be the 12th square for Benton County. You can find out many more details about this painting station, about the quilt trail, and about everything that's connected to this month's Art on the Bricks Walk in downtown Rogers by simply going to artonthebricks.com. And this is Ozarks at Large. The KUAF Giving Tree has wrapped up the 2023 campaign this season benefiting the Yvonne Richardson Community Center. All the time people come back and go, hey, I grew up here. You hear the stories they give you about what an impact the center made for them, and then you're seeing them, and then they want to give back to the center. We're bringing opportunities for them to learn how to read, pick up their homework studies, and connections with people and mentors in the community. The Giving Tree and KUAF Public Radio. Your voice makes a difference. This is Ozarks at Large. Some unfinished business with 2023, mainly Courtney Lanning's top five films of 2023. Yesterday we heard numbers 10 through 6. Quick review, Burial was number 10, Godzilla minus 1 was number 9, Florence Sun 8, American Fiction 7, The Holdover 6. Courtney, welcome back. And something I didn't ask you yesterday, but I should have, how were your holidays? Kyle, my holidays were good. Good. We had this big, big, uh, wonderful sort of old school film phenomenon in the middle of 2023 called Barbenheimer. We didn't hear about Barbie or Oppenheimer in numbers 10 through 6, but we're starting off number 5 with one of the two. Uh, number 5 on my list of top 10 movies for 2023 goes to Oppenheimer. You know, this is a movie that is proof that Christopher Nolan can make a three-hour film about anything, and it will fill seats. Uh, this was what a rated R movie. It's three hours long. Portions of it are black and white. You have three different competing timelines in the narrative. And it still made tons of money at the box office. A really, really top-tier cast that included, you know, so many people. You had Florence Pugh. You had Celian Murphy in the main role. You had Matt Damon. I mean, there's just Emily Blunt was in this movie, and everybody's just giving it. They're all firing on all cylinders. And it's, the result is just phenomenal. Everything that could have possibly gone right for this movie did, including the accidental marketing with Barbie. And this is the story of of a real man, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who made the atomic bomb along with tons of other scientists here in America at the height of World War II. And for all the good performances, one of the best, and I won't spoil it, it's a cameo, the actor who plays President Harry Truman. Yes. We talk a lot about the performances, but you also have to give so much credit to the sound design and the, the special effects of this movie, right? I mean, you, you spend so much of the movie building up to the atomic blast, and when it happens... It's not just something that's over in, you know, 20 seconds. 
it's phenomenal. The movie really steals your breath. It was not a good year at the box office for most superhero movies, especially in the second half of the year. There were a number of box office disappointments from the second Aquaman to the Marvels to uh, the Flash. But early in the year, there was an animated film that's probably a front runner for the Oscar for Best Animated Film, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It's your number four movie of the year. The, the animation in Across the Spider-Verse, this new film, is pushed to the bounds of what humans can accomplish with this art form. It's beautiful. It's, it's glorious. And it is absolutely going to be a contender for Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. This is a movie that shows people aren't tired of superhero stories. They're just tired of cliché, same old, same old superhero stories. Spider-Man goes into the, the Spider-Verse, so to speak, the, the concept that was introduced in the first film. And this film just dials it up even more. They have dozens upon dozens upon dozens of Spider-Man, hundreds of Spider-Men and Spider-Women uh, throughout this movie. Uh, most of them, of course, are just background characters, but you do get through so much Spider-Man comic history and lore. So somebody like you who's going to watch this, and I don't paint that with a negative brush. I know, I, just I know. Somebody who grew up reading the Peter Parker stories and now the Miles Morales stories um, is going to see tons and tons of little Easter eggs in history. And, and other people like me who have not read decades of Spider-Man comics are just going to have an amazing story uh, with fantastic performances and mind-blowing animation. One of the frustrating things for me with Netflix as a subscriber is it thinks it knows what I want through the algorithm, and there are great series and films that I never even know exist on Netflix because it's such an unwieldy search at some times. And your number three movie is one of an example of that. This is a story that has been, this movie is basically uh, a miracle in and of itself that we even have it. You know, the background story for Nimona is it's based on a graphic novel by N.D. Stevenson. Nimona is a story that is a special breed touching on themes of us versus them. It examines how society can be technologically advanced while surprisingly primitive and how others are treated. It's a movie that dares to tackle heavy topics like mental health and suicide ideation and LGBTQ plus inclusion. And it wraps all of that in this wicked smart metaphor about a girl who can shapeshift and change into virtually anything. You know, this whole movie is basically about a knight who is framed for murdering his queen. Um, and the whole city quickly turns against him, thinking that he did it. And it is about a girl named Nimona who can shapeshift and change into animals and people and basically anything she can imagine. And she sort of comes into his life and, and helps him when nobody else will to, to prove his innocence. Set in this really cool, futuristic, but also sort of medieval setting. You have a city where there are still knights and they're equipped with laser swords and there's flying cars and the background buildings are skyscrapers, but they're still castles and there's like uh, city walls are, are built like castle walls. And it's, it's just a really unique imaginative world. And we wouldn't have this movie. Uh, there's a animation studio that was working on Nomono called Blue Sky Studios. They are the ones who gave us uh, Ice Age mm -hmm. and the, the, the Peanuts reboot film in 2015. And when Disney bought Fox, Fox owns Blue Sky Studios, and Disney basically shut them down because we're Disney. What do we need a spare animation studio for? Why would we want that competition for, for our, our animation identity? So they shut them down. 
Nimona was in the process of being maimed when Blue Sky was killed. Um, and through some back channel miracle work, Netflix got a hold of this movie that was unfinished and said, no, no, we, we want this. Um, and resurrected it, gave it a fresh coat of paint, new life. And, you know, it's thanks to Netflix that we have this, this top tier animated film. Nimona, now available on Netflix. It's number three on your list. Number two, back to Barbenheimer, is, I don't want to say it was the little movie that could because they spent a lot of money on it, but I don't think anyone really saw what was going to happen with Barbie. I don't think anybody did either. People kept hearing, oh, they're making a movie based on Barbie. Oh, they're making a movie based on Barbie. And, and I don't think anybody knew what that was going to be. Was it going to be sort of a documentary about the making of Barbie as, as, a, as a brand and a doll? Was it going to be about animated like life of a Barbie doll? And what we got was just unimaginably great. This is a movie that has so many incredible characteristics to fawn over. The sets, the makeup and costume designs are among the best. They really created this vibrant world for Barbie lands and the looks that they gave to the main characters. On top of that, you have just some of the most creative visuals in any film of this year. You have a story that is, you know, it's emotional, but it's hopeful, but it's realistic at the same time. And they all serve to complement a film that's capable of making an audience laugh, cry, think, believe, and just so much more. Amazing choreography and dance numbers to a driving feminist monologue that I'm still thinking about today. Barbie really is for everyone, uh, and this is a film that, that proves it. That's number two, Barbie. Number one, a film that you and I talked about just a few weeks ago as 2023 ended. I say that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is a contender for Best Animated Film. The Boy and the Heron, your top film, also. And there are, now I'm seeing people say, let's put it among the nine or ten that actually get nominated for Best Film. You know, this is what people were saying about um, Godzilla Minus One, right? They were saying, this is such a great movie. Don't just in this, yeah. Don't pigeonhole it as like this. Um, don't just put it in the category for foreign language film. You know, put it in the category for special effects and best picture, and don't limit it. And same thing here with the boy and the heron. Director is this god of animation, Hayao Miyazaki. Eighty-two. He's still busting his rump and cranking out masterpiece after masterpiece. Uh, the Boy and the Heron is his latest offering after 2014's The Wind Rises. You know, again, set in a post-World War II Japan. In this case, uh, set in the middle of World War II in Japan. It's about a boy who loses his mother uh, during firebombs in Tokyo. His father remarries, um, and he moves out to the country and basically is, is getting a new mom and has to get used to the fact that this new mom is pregnant and he's going to have a new sibling. And, you know, everything is sort of unstable in his life. He's grieving the loss of his mother. And then just a bunch of really strange things happen to him. And he finds himself in this, this magical world. And his new mom is sort of abducted by these talking, warmongering birds. And he's got to find a way to rescue her and bring her back to their worlds. You know, it's got magic. It's got commentary on war and violence and the human condition and thirst for aggression. Um, and it's about putting broken families back together and moving them forward into the future. The visuals are just breathtaking, the story is pure magic, and all of the themes that I've mentioned 
compact nicely into a, a two-hour movie. All right, The Boy and the Heron, number one. So to review both yesterday and today's conversations, The Burial, number 10, that's available right now on Amazon Prime. Number nine, Godzilla Minus One in theaters. Number eight, Flora and Son on Apple TV+. Plus. Number seven, American Fiction, about to go in wide release in theaters. Number six, The Holdovers is in wide release in theaters. Eventually, all of these will be streaming. Oppenheimer, uh, I think, is now on Max after a, a big run. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is somewhere on 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 your home It's TV. on Netflix right now. Yeah. Number three, Nimona, also on Netflix. Number two, Barbie, which may not be available yet for just free it's streaming. It's on Max right now. Oh, it's on Max right now. There you go. And number one, The Boy and the Heron in theaters right now. I have a few runners up from last year that didn't quite crack the list, but uh, they include... Joyride and Theater Camp and Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Dumb Money, Knock at the Cabin, and Asteroid City. All those close to the top of the list or close to making the cut for the list. Um, And just, you know, that's the thing about a top 10 list, right? right? You can only have 10. And you can find this list and more about Courtney's thoughts about these films at OzarksAtLarge.com and KUAF.com. What will be the first movie we talk about that is a 2024 movie? We will talk about so many movies all throughout 2024, I'm sure. But the very first one uh, that we will discuss on Ozarks at Large is called The Book of Clarence. And its uh, I've seen the trailer. It looks like it's kind of a comedy. Yeah, it looks like a sort of a, a biblical comedy sort of retelling on the passion project. Yes. Courtney Lanning, thanks for a great 2023. I look forward to our conversations in 2024. I'm looking forward to it myself. Thanks for having me. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth. Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. If you ever miss an edition of Ozarks at Large, we got you covered. You can subscribe to the free newsletter that lands in your inbox every weekday morning, delivering you the latest from our show. You can also peruse the list of stories and find transcripts and graphic renderings of city streets, (laughs) among other things, at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. And you can search for Ozarks at Large in the podcast app of your choosing and listen at any time. Kyle, I tried for a couple of days to go out with Dane from from the story we heard earlier in the hour. It was to, always raining or windy. It was raining or, or windy snowing. or yeah, 12 degrees outside. Right. Um, so I didn't get a chance to go and look at these specific spots uh, out in the field. But um, I can assure listeners that once construction starts happening, uh, I have been invited to go out and catch some really good sound of jackhammers and whatever other wonderful construction sounds are going to make it on the radio. I heard a lot of construction sounds today when I was at the uh, Walmart HQ's first building that's going to open up is their health and wellness. It's huge, three indoor pools and uh, a squash court, badminton courts. They were, the grand opening is Friday, but they were still sort of, you know, straightening up. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll have that story coming up on Ozarks at Large. 
that uh, that's coming up later this week. Uh, but for today, I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks so much for listening. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season at Walton Arts Center Saturday, January 30th with The Great Unknown, performing notable works by a trio of American composers, including Samuel Barber's Symphony No. 1, William Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony, and George Gershwin's An American in Paris. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org.